Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with author Brian Gruber. We caught up with him in Bangkok about his book, Six Days at Ronnie Scott's Billy Cobham on Jazz Fusion and the Act of Creation. We got to know this author and journalist and media man and what led him to pen this book about an exceptional Panamanian-born New York City-raised jazz drummer that now lives in Switzerland, a place he's called home for four decades. From Billy's early days with Horace Silver and Dreams to the Bitches Brew sessions with Miles Davis from his other breakthrough sessions in the world of fusion. Brian covers the six days at the iconic London Jazz Club, Ronnie Scott's, giving a needed insight into the history of a jazz shrine and a musician that has made a huge impact, not only on jazz, but the entire world of music. Get to know Brian. Thank you for taking some time. First of all, thank you for sending over six days at Ronnie Scott's. And thank you for taking some time out. It's, It's a great book. This is so much up my avenue of what I love to do, which... I, which the one thing I do want to I want to say as far as what I do with jazz, when I started doing this about seven years ago, I'm about 569 shows in, about 640 some odd interviews. I decided when I was going to cover jazz that I'm not going to read from a book, I'm not going to read from literature. I'm going to talk to the musicians. So I respect and admire the fact that you got into the head of Billy, a legend, and really pulled back a lot of layers of who he was from his Panamanian beginnings to the fact that he's this stellar superstar that gets so charged by school children in London that come to see him. That, you know, that, totally. And that, to me, is like the hallmark of his essence, is that that, out of everything... You know, having a packed room for that many days is one thing, but for him, for the wisdom he's acculturated throughout his lifetime, for him to be able to do that to kids, that shows who he is. So let's start off here. You know, my father was born and raised in Brooklyn, and I had a cat. That the, the I don't know how this cat lived that we had. It was a calico. It lived for like 25 years. The cat's name was Chauncey. So... <laughs> All of these things that I see in the early goes of Brooklyn is just coming back through my father's words. So what I want to know from your angle is, I'm going to start with you and then I'm going to work my way into Billy. Talk to me about you and how you got into this journalistic niche of what you do and how you live your life. Yeah, I, I did grow up in Brooklyn and went to Queens College and moved out to uh, San Francisco. And my education was in broadcast journalism and media and I... My career was in cable television, mostly in marketing, but also when I was the first head of marketing for C-SPAN, the public affairs cable network, I also hosted uh, live hour-long call-in shows with prominent uh, political guests like, you know, Jim McCain or Strom Thurmond or Bill Bradley or whoever. And with C-SPAN, of course, you really are there to get the story of the people sitting next to you. It's not about you as the host. Uh, it's about uh, drawing out that person's history and, and what they're about. I then did a couple of startups, one called Fora TV, uh, which took great public forums from around the world, put them online, got some funding for that, and did a lot of interviewing around that with some wonderful people. And one other startup called Shogo TV, where I put live stream remote control HD cameras into elite jazz clubs around the world to try to create a platform where someone like you can pick up an iPad any time of the day and night, 
seeing seven or eight live shows from around the world and another 40 or 50 from the last 24 hours. And so I spent my career packaging and marketing other people's media. And finally, about eight years ago, I came here to the island of Copenhagen in the Gulf of Thailand and wrote a novel and really loved the act of creation personally and then did a, a second book that I funded on Kickstarter wondering why the country always seems to be at war and we never seem to be able to get the job done as it was originally promised, putting aside morality or the partisan politics of war. So traveled around the world to scenes of the last half century of U.S. military interventions uh, for a book called War the After Party, interviewing people who are on the other end of the gun barrel and looking at what are the real human and financial costs of war on, on both sides. That was an extraordinary experience going to places like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, Cambodia, uh, Nicaragua, etc. So writing for me has come relatively late in life. I'm 63 years old, but it kind of comes on the tail end of a life of studying and innovating and creating new forms of media. And this last book with Bill was really a labor of love, and I had a ball doing it. So of all of these people that you've set up interviews for and interviewed, what do you get from a jazz musician? Is there a level of them that's grounded, more humble, coming from a different place, not pretentious? I mean, I don't want to be negative on politicians and other people, but I know in my history as a journalist, being around jazz musicians has been one of the most refreshing things I've ever experienced professionally. Yeah, of course, you know, uh, mostly they're improvising and they're playing from the heart and it's all raw right there on stage, particularly people like Billy Cobb, who have been tempted over the years. You know, at one point I joked with Bill, so in other words, there was no Billy Cobham disco era, you know, <laughs> particularly people who, of course, wanted to make money and, of course, wanted success, but wanted to do it on, on their own terms. I will say, when I was at C-SPAN way back in the 80s and would interview Congress people uh, from both sides of the aisle... At that time, especially, I think people in politics who didn't always vote the, the party line, or maybe they voted the party line 60-70% of the time, where now it's more like 95-100% to 100 of the time, I was impressed with the intellectual honesty uh, and commitment of a lot of people who I interviewed back then. I'm not sure I'd have the same experience today, but with Bill, it was a matter of uh, getting to know him like eight years ago and hearing all these stories over the years and finally just getting frustrated and saying, listen, man, uh, for posterity and for yourself, we've got to get these stories down. And it gave me a tremendous entree to talk to people who would otherwise not give me the time of day. I mean, Wendy Brecker and Ron Carter and uh, Bill Bruford and so many others who adore Bill and were, were willing to talk to me. And I was asked, able to ask them any, anything I wanted. So, And that's where part of the title came from. It came late. Uh, some other bits of the title were a bit more obvious. But this idea of the act of creation, what motivates a guy like Billy Cobham, who is, in effect, a rock star with Mahavishnu Orchestra playing to big auditoriums in, in 1973, and then he had a need, even though he couldn't write music at the time, he had a need to go out and create the album Spectrum, which was a breakthrough hit while he was at Mahavishnu. And what motivates someone like him year after year, even now at the age, I believe, of 74? 
I know he could play some jazz standards and a few hits and call it a day. Most, you know, most people in that in an audience coming for a night of entertainment wouldn't know the difference. But people like him and Randy Brecker and so many others, Ryan Carter, just have an impulse to want to continue to create. And to me, that strikes so deeply to what the human condition is about that it just fascinated me. How did this idea for this book come about and how did you get such good, solid, unfettered access not only to Ronnie Scott's, but to Bill and all of those, the cast of characters? Yeah, so originally I just had talked to him over time about saying, you know, there's never been a book written about Billy Cobb. And he has, he's, he's played with everyone. I mean, you know, there was one line in the book where I said, you look around on the walls of Ronnie Scott's, one of the great iconic jazz clubs in the world in, in London, and it was clear to me that Bill either played with everyone on that wall or played with someone who played with them. And so, you know, he has these amazing stories. And, and, and actually, at one point, it would annoy me. It would be like, you know, suddenly, I thought I knew the guy, and he told me all these stories over the years. And he'd say, yeah, I used to play uh, in a dance band with the, in the New York Armory, and uh, Jimi Hendrix was the guitarist. And, oh, yeah, I did a play on Broadway in 1969 called Big Time Buck White. And uh, I was the drummer, and Muhammad Ali played the lead, lead role. And, you know, just one story after the other, Jack Bruce and Grateful Dead, and, uh, and, um, amazing stories that were not only interesting musical stories, but, you know, interesting sociological, political stories about this black Panamanian American New Yorker who moved to Switzerland almost 40 years ago and has been having all these extraordinary experiences. So finally, when he said he was doing this this very unique six-day run at Ronnie Scott's, which he sells out every year for 11 years. Nobody plays Ronnie Scott's every year for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's unheard of. Uh, but he does, because um, they always sell out. He, and there's a fellow by the name of Guy Barker, who I got to know and really like, uh, who is uh, an esteemed British arranger and trumpeter and, and has scored some films. And Guy took uh, the whole legacy of Bill's music and arranged it for a 17-piece big band. Each member of that band could headline a show at Ronnie Scott's. They're the creme de la creme of British jazz musicians. So finally, the original idea was just, hey, let's do a 50 to 100 page ebook, some backstage conversations. Let's get your stories down. We'll put it online. We'll be done. And I'll go back to Thailand, where I live. And the project expanded because there was so much rich material and so many great stories. And and then there were the issues like, you know, what happened in the late 60s and early 70s where there was all this social and cultural tumult and upheaval uh, where people were interested in everything from new forms of spirituality to changing the way we looked at race in America to changing the way we looked at, at music. So. Also, when I started to do these interviews, gradually it, it came to be a full-length book, and then the idea came to me, and you never know, you know, you're a creative guy, you do a lot of creative work yourself, you never know when you have an idea, whether it's a painting or a book or an interview or radio show or whatever, whether the idea will work, but it struck me that six days at Ronnie Scott's uh, backstage interviews and a, and a real unprecedented look at 
how shows are put together with the rehearsals and sound checks and how they decide day to day what they play and change the playlist and see how the acoustics in the room change, how Bill sets up his drum set. You know, the idea came to me that can I overlay this kind of backstage inside baseball look, if you will, of what happens in a six day run with six decades of this guy's musical life that had so much rich detail. You know, the one thing that, that I think about when I think about a book and how, how all of it comes together is I have that Tale of Two Cities thing, and I think about the first line and the last line of this book, which is very profound, and I just want to ask you about it. The first line is, a three-year-old boy alone in his room on a Saturday morning is the master of the universe. And then you go to the last line, to light up the sky and make people fly. Those two notions... And then they, they, they seem to wrap up a lot of the magic and majesty of Bill. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn, and uh, not too far, I was born not too far from where Bill was born. I grew up in, uh, not born, but rather grew up in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And I thought, hey, before going to London for the show, why don't I go to his old neighborhood and sit on the bench in front of his old house and walk around the neighborhood and see what it was like, uh, what that neighborhood was like, because he would tell stories about it. And then I went to try to go to 52nd Street, the old mecca of jazz, where now there aren't no jazz clubs there anymore. And I wrote about that at length in the book, as, as you know, Ronnie Scott himself, uh, the, the namesake of the, of the London club, uh, decided to do his club after 1947, going to 52nd Street and seeing Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and seeing them all jam at night. Went to Smalls, where they do it as you may know, an all-night jam until about four in the morning, and then and then flew to to London. And Bill told some stories about when he was three years old. And that's how the, the book uh, starts out, uh, or it's within the first few pages. He told stories about when he was three years old, the incredible music that would be played in his house. But also, you have these Latin percussionists who, in the park, Fulton Park, right across the street from his house on Chauncey Street, I believe, would every Saturday morning get together and play. And I try to imagine a lot of these guys who just came back from World War II and probably had tough jobs and tough lives, what that music meant to them. But he would tell the story about how, when he was three years old, he heard that music. And so in the opening chapter, in the opening page, I tried to recreate what it would be like if all week long, you know, when you're a three-year-old kid, you know, your parents are controlling, are controlling everything. But on Saturday morning, when he's uh, locked in his room, you know, or you know, in his room by himself while his parents are, you know, cleaning up or, or, or doing errands, this boy sitting there, uh, first of all, when you're alone in your room, you, you're, you're the master of the universe. Whether you're imagining, you know, uh, that you're a baseball, famous baseball player or an NFL player. You know, you're able to fantasize and have this space for yourself. So the opening of the book talks about what might have motivated and energized this kid, Justin from Panama, to have percussion fill uh, his body and his soul in such a way that it stayed with him over the years when he decided as a kid to get into drumming and percussion. The one thing about... Billy's life, and I think it mirrors jazz, is that there's this timelessness, there's this longevity, and the thing that's fascinating about Billy is that 
there's musicians that have an album or two and they go away. You know, we know about them and we know about one hit wonders. But there's musicians like him, almost kind of a Mick Jaggerish kind of guy, where they consistently stay in the game. They consistently either remain where they're at or evolve to a higher place. What is it about Billy that is timeless? Yeah, he loves the music. And part of it, in, in that first chapter, it talks about the first date. And I had a friend with me who worked with a lot of rock and roll musicians, and he said he's never seen someone spending two or three hours setting up their gear and, and, and testing it. So for him, I believe even to this day, he still loves creating. I asked Randy Brecker that question. Randy was a great interview for me. What a warm, uh, interesting guy. Man, yeah. And, 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 and Randy, at one point, Randy said, because he said, he once asked that question of, uh, of uh, Paul Simon's manager, and, you know, uh, how can we keep doing this at, at this age? And part of it, part of the answer it gave was, it's all we know how to do. And as soon as we create something, uh, we're bored with it. We've done it. And then we want to move on to something and create something new. So either that activates you or it doesn't. And I think that there's, just as in life and in, in many aspects of life, you make choices. And as you make those choices through your career, either you say, hey, I want to make the most money I can. I want to get the widest audience I can, have hit records, sell as many records as I can, which, of course, everyone wants to do at some level. Or you say, yeah, I want all that, but I want to continue to create, and I want to create what I want to create. And if people like it, that's great. Uh, and of course, when people come to a show, Bill's a great entertainer. But ultimately, you know, you're, you're in effect, you're creating it for yourself to, to satisfy your own standards because in the course of your creative life, uh, you haven't made some of those uh, compromises. I think once you do make those compromises and you become, in effect, a commercial artist trying to maximize your commercial opportunity, I think uh, something happens to your creative process. Whereas if for decades, as it is with Bill, uh, you simply want to keep pushing the envelope and generating new ideas and communicating things that are happening in your life through music, and we talk about that in the final chapter, that continues to motivate and drive and energize you. You know, with figures like Billy, they tend to be vessels of story for jazz lore, and I would think one of the most interesting and fascinating people in the history of jazz that continues to fascinate and become larger than life is Miles Davis. And in my history of interviewing anyone from Sonny Rollins to Ron Carter to John McLaughlin, all the way down the line, I try to avoid specifically bringing up Miles and making him a big part of the interview because I don't think it pays enough respect and credence to who they are, but it's almost an unavoidable elephant in the room when you're talking to people like this. And I can tell you from my experience, even with alluding or playing off of them talking about Miles, I never get that much about Miles. It's not negative, it's just kind of something like you feel something in the air and it's almost sidestep. Like, even if I get anything on Miles, it's about, we did this in the studio and that was it. That's pretty much the extent of it. 
with Billy, did you get a sense from him that it was all business? Did you get anything else that was palatable about Miles Davis? It's really interesting you say that because I would ask several times in different ways because I felt I wanted more about Miles. And Bill gave me what he gave me. And, and, and there were a few things. One was, of course, the Bitches Brew experience. And I also uh, discussed in the preface my own experience as a, as a 14-year-old boy with my father, a jazz lover, and my brother, a rocker, taking me to my first concert at the Fillmore East in New York. Uh, the month that Bitches Brew was uh, introduced, was brought to the public. And, you know, that, that show was uh, uh, Miles Davis, Steve Miller Blues Band, and Neil Young and, and, and Crazy Horse. Bill then went on uh, to do several albums with, you know, Jack Johnson and Lyle Beatles on the corner, several albums with, with Miles. And there was one moment in, in the book where Bill said Miles Davis asked him to go on tour with him. I mean, come on, a young guy. Miles Davis asking you to join his band. Yeah. He also talked about a very funny story about how he, he first connected with Miles. And uh, Miles asked him to join the band and tour. And Bill said no. I asked, what, that must have been a, a tough decision. And Bill looked at me and said, no, it wasn't. And, and at that moment, it, it just struck me that you have to really have a personal creative vision and personal aspirations to want to do things uh, that are apart from what's the quickest path to uh, fame and fortune. So for him to turn down Miles Davis at a, at a young age was was uh, extraordinary. But of course, he also uh, learned a great deal. He also, when I asked him if they socialized, I asked Ron Carter the same thing, and they both said largely no. But you know, Bill has never taken drugs, never had an alcohol problem, and you know, Bill would. You know, play these big arenas or big shows or whatever with Mahavishnu, and then he would go to his room and order room service and go to sleep so that he can come in early for the next uh, day's show and practice and be physically ready. And if you watch any of those videos from the 70s or 80s, when when Bill is, is on the drums, whether it's with Mahavishnu or playing George Duke or Jack Brabs or whatever, he was a force of nature. It was, it was almost supernatural how physically powerful he was. So by choosing to protect his body, and we talked a bit about that, and, and by choosing not to be in that whole late night scene, uh, which involved often drugs and alcohol and staying out late, whatever, he shut himself out of a lot of that social network that he might have been in. You know, it's interesting. The thing that I always find fascinating about musicians is kind of that sliding door effect. Like, if you get on the if you get on the subway and you get in that that car, or you don't, how your life can change. And him telling Miles, "I'm not going to do it." I had an interview yesterday with Jerry Vivino, the saxophone player from the Conan O'Brien band that was recently disbanded. And he talked about how it started. He had a choice with his brother to go on tour with Donald Fagan for five weeks. But he had just met Max Weinberg probably several months before and got offered this audition for this new guy named Conan O'Brien that was doing this band that for a late night show. He decided, he doesn't know exactly why, but he just decided this could be a better deal than five weeks with one of the brainchilds of Steely Dan. And look what happened. Right. 25 years later, this guy has a life and a pension for musicians, which is a big deal. 
So it's funny how all of those things happen. Like they have this vision, but there's almost a part of luck that goes into it. And I think about that with Billy's life. He's a man of integrity, but there's also that underlying thing when you hear about these guys where it's just straight up luck or just the way life works. Yeah, and a fascinating guy with fascinating stories. The one thing that I, I want to ask about him, too, is I'm getting ready to read a biography on um, Dexter Gordon. And Dexter moved away from the United States. And I'm wondering, right. from, from, from what you've gathered about Billy... It's kind of a rare thing to have a musician that's that influential in the United States not be here for as long as he has. And in the book, you elaborated on how he was kind of tailed in the beginning. They didn't know why this big African-American fellow that does not look Swiss <laughs> at all is in this country and why. So my question to you is... What kind of risk was that for him, and how how much pleasure has it brought him into his life to avoid the masquerade, so to speak, of America, which obviously you're living as well? Yeah, I think there were there were two aspects to it. One, the direction that American popular music was taken, or music in general, in the in the in the late seventies with uh, disco and some other genres or, or formats, was just something that he did not want to be a part of, and ultimately. He felt, in order to continue to do his music, and of course, as you know, Europeans often appreciate quality jazz more than Americans do. So he had a sense that to continue to play and create the music that he wanted, the United States was not the place where he want, wanted to be. The second thing was, as a kid from a shanty town in Cologne, uh, Panama, and he'd done some touring, of course, with... Horace Silver in 1968 in London and, and Europe, etc. Um, and by, by that time, he had done a lot more touring. Um, he wanted to challenge himself, and he wanted to see the world and see what the world was really like. And and yeah, you're you're right. I have a similar, you know, personal view of that. That when you live in the United States, so many wonderful aspects of uh, living in the U.S. At a certain point, you want to see. Is there a way of living or an attitude towards life uh, that's different if you were to be outside of the United States? And so he challenged himself personally, and one thing led to another, and, and he was in uh, Switzerland and then uh, decided to, uh, to settle there and live there. And of course, he comes back to the States once or twice a year to do tours and has many friends and you know a lot of reasons to be, to be back. But... Uh, he just decided that he liked living in Europe. And as you said, a lot of both African-American and white musicians, I mean, we talked about Chet Baker, who uh, was in uh, in Amsterdam and living a very different lifestyle than, than, than Bill was. So if you look at Josephine Baker and, and Dexter and so many, so many others, there was an attraction. Also, I would imagine that opens you up creatively where you are... Um, uh, getting out of the, not necessarily the matrix, but you're, you're getting out of the same way of looking at the world and same uh, experience in the music business that you've been uh, around for some, some time. And I think that's what attracted him. You know, I did an interview with the executive director of the Mutual Musicians Foundation here in Kansas City, the local 627, which gave African Americans and a an unbelievable amount of exposure in Kansas City and beyond. And that was a facility 
that still has late night jam sessions and every musician that you can imagine has walked through that door from John Coltrane to Charlie Parker on and on and on and on Art Blakey and all those guys and I went in and interviewed her and she told me that a paranormal crew just went through there and they left and they were freaked out there was so much going on in there that they were not in a bad way but in a good way and I asked this about Ronnie Scott's so I haven't been to the Village Vanguard or Ronnie Scott's, and I hope at some point that I do get to go into these hallowed jazz institutions. But my question to you is this. When you're in a place like that, do you feel a kindred room of ghosts rubbing shoulders, kind of imbuing this great karmic feeling about what's going on in there? Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it as ghosts. I would, though, as I did, describe uh, it as akin to going to cathedral. I, me- I remember when I took my daughters to... Uh, some great cathedrals or libraries, or when one was looking at where she wanted to go to university, and we were sitting in the UCLA library, very grand place, just like a great museum. To me, and when I did the Shogo TV jazz thing, to me, the club was always a character uh, in that show. So yes, the live stream was about who was playing, but the, the house that they were in played a very important part in how they were playing and and who they were playing to. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, you named two of the great uh, of the great clubs where you go in, it's sort of like going to a great museum. You may not care that much about the exhibit that's uh, being promoted that month, but you want to be in that space because it's so, it's so beautiful. So I do think, uh, I, I didn't necessarily bump into any ghosts there, but I love being backstage at Ronnie Scott's and having Guy Barker talking about how uh, Ronnie used to come back there and ask him if he has any any new jokes and, and, and look at the photos on the wall. And there's a certain kind of sacred aspect to these places because, let's face it, there are humans who have put themselves out there and created uh, transcendent experiences for, for audiences. I mean, when you go to sh- shows in places like that, for many people, it's simply great entertainment. And that's enough. That's fine. But there are moments and there are some shows that I've experienced and you've experienced where it's more than just great entertainment. There's something transcendent that happens on that stage between you and the people on the bandstand and that club, which has held so many historic shows like that, is a big part of it. So for me... And then, by the way, the Ronnie Scott's people were incredibly gracious. Everything from Michael Watt, the co-owner, to Paul Pace, the guy who does the music booking, to Simon Cook, who's the managing director. They gave me free reign of the place. And going into those spaces uh, are are magical to me. I had a, a great time there. And the Vanguard, of course, is a wonderful space as well. You know... The one thing about jazz is when you look at the uh, the lore of America, you know, baseball is this timeless thing that continues to be prevalent and relevant in our in our country and in the world. And so does jazz. I mean, you know, you're you're in Thailand. You know, you talk. The Japanese love jazz. The Europeans love jazz. It's one of those American exports, so to speak. So my question to you is this: What is the timelessness? and the strength of jazz that will make it endure forever. Yeah, I think when you look at the, at the history, at, at, at how a lot of Western African uh, uh, slaves transported their music for them 
in the misery that they went through in the United States or the Caribbean or Brazil, the music that they brought, the rhythms, the way that they communicated with each other, the, the development of the, of the blues and, and gospel and other genres had so much spiritual power and so much meaning. Over the course of time, as the, the music evolved, it continues to be a great fertile ground for experimentation and for people to take it in places that, that they that they want to take. And of course, you had, as we did in the, in the shows at Ronnie Scott's, when you have masterful musicians on stage, they're able to do things spontaneously and trading riffs with each other that are done in real time. So I think this aspect of spontaneous creativity and improvisation and, and creating in real time and what, of course, what Billy Cobham and others did during the era of fusion. There was jazz and there was rock. And then Bill brought the, you know, from his Panamanian background, he brought a Latin groove to it and he brought a funk groove. And so what I think what in the book with all these jazz critics and club owners and musicians all agree on. Uh, in fact, uh, Mike Hobart of the Financial Times, I think, called it, you know, Bill's place in the firmament of jazz. He was the innovator and pioneer that was able to take all these different genres and put them together in a, a unique way. So from that point of view, while from a popular music and album sales point of view, uh, assuming People are still buying albums. Jazz has suffered, and, and jazz has taken a back seat. Well, you know, back in the day, and the book explores this, jazz was popular music. And when Bill was listening to the radio, or, you know, back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, before rock and roll and other genres, jazz was popular music and, and, the, and the best-selling music. But I think, I think that uh, jazz endures because of improvisation, because there are so many new ways that innovators like Billy Cobham can can take it and, can, and continue to create. And of course, jazz imbues most of the musical genres we know about. If you, if you talk about blues or gospel or rock and roll or R&B or hip-hop, the foundation, the starting point is jazz. Absolutely. So is there anything else jazz story interview-wise that's on your radar that you want to cover? No, I think uh, I'm doing a book now about the history of this incredible island that I live on, Copenhagen. Uh, just interviewed today, I'm talking about Switzerland, a, a, a Thai chef who made a lot of uh, uh, money in, uh, in his career in Switzerland, came back and opened up a big resort and then walked away from all of it to become a Buddhist monk. Just Fred and I were talking about that. And this island just has some very unique history over the last few decades. To me, the, the common thread is I love to help people to tell their stories. So, uh, and there was even one night when I was at dinner, uh, when Bill did this thing called Art of the Rhythm Section this summer in Phoenix. So I went to see him and I had a dinner with Bill and Ron Carter and, and Kenny Barron. And, and then, you know, Ron, you know, like a little boy, was so excited. I said, hey, come back to my hotel room. I just did this new audio book. And, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, he's playing me these, these uh, clips from his new audiobook while he's sitting on the couch in his, in his pajamas. So I love the opportunity, whether it was with the war book or back in my C-SPAN experience, I love the opportunity to help tell stories. So if there's another jazz musician 
uh, who would love to do a similar project, yes, sign me up for that because I find, as you do, their creative lives and, and the way that they approach life so interesting. But my primary interest these days is uh, how to find interesting stories and people whose stories uh, need to be told. And it, I have a lot of fun doing that. The art of storytelling, I dig it. I totally dig it. Brian, thank you for taking some time out. Thank you for the book, and keep on keep on putting it out there, man. I will, and of course, one final story. I'll keep this very short. Sure. I don't know why, but whatever sports team my older brother used to root for back in New York, when I was five years old, I would pick the other team, and I became a lifelong fan of those teams uh, until this uh, very day. And in 1969, I was a Kansas City Chiefs fan, <laughs> Uh, since the time they were the, the Dallas Texans. And when they went to the Super Bowl, I was at Brooklyn Tech High, and there was a guy named Joel, and he bet me $5 on who would win the Super Bowl because he was very sure it was going to be the Vikings. The Chiefs won, and he didn't pay up. So, Joel, if you're out there in the audience, I want my goddamn $5 back, and go Chiefs. And it has interest on it, so that's going to be one hell of a payout. <laughs> You got it, man. Man alive. Yeah, we got to find that guy. For Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest people in London, Bangkok, New York City, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Brian for his time, his honesty, his cool, and for being such a devout Chiefs fan. <laughs> if you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz... Go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.